Welcome to the Untitled Burton and Fran podcast. We're two brothers separated by time and distance. Please join us as we reconnect through our mutual love of horror movies. Excellent. Welcome to episode three of the Untitled Burton Friend Horror Podcast. I'm so we have a trilogy. We'll have a trilogy. This is Alberto. This this is <laughs> this is our first three episodes. They have nothing in common except that they are all critical darlings. And this one is the is Green Room, not the Green Room, but Green Room. Green Room. It is a ninety minute long film by Jeremy Sonier. And I just looked up, there's going to be a TV series called The Green Room this year. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. And it's about medical marijuana. So I completely Could, different. Couldn't be more different. Yeah. This is a horror movie set uh, somewhere on the West Coast, Pacific Northwest. We meet a band of four kids, that's 20-somethings, who are traveling in a van up the coast uh, I think the first shot is one of three very notable overhead shots that are very beautiful, where we see that their van has soft landed into a cornfield. And we meet all the characters as they are waking up. Hilariously, none of them have been injured, and they've all fallen asleep as their car ran into a cornfield while they were all sleeping and ran out of gas. We see them then siphoning gas, a trick, a trade that they are very adept at. They do a very poorly attended gig. They are very, very pretentious. I think part of the buy-in of the movie is that you are supposed to like the rebel attitude of the kids. They're stealing gas. You listen to them being interviewed for a podcast, and they refuse to have advertising in social media. And it's no wonder that their nobody shows are poorly that. attended because <laughs> nobody knows they're around, but they've got these uh, very, very arch values on what they believe they should be doing as artists, and one of them is not promoting themselves, but somehow they're furious that nobody wants to see them. This is actually a plot point because what happens in the second half of the film is nobody knows or cares where they are. We see them go to a neo-Nazi compound that gets recommended by this uh, punk kid in the last uh, gig that they played. While they're there, they antagonize the audience. They play a short set. While they're leaving, one of them remembers that they forgot their phone charger. And when they run back to the green room to retrieve it, they find a freshly stabbed body of a young woman. Then they are all held captive by the neo-Nazis while their leader comes to the compound and decides what to do. The leader being Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart of Star Trek and a million stage plays, Royal Shakespearean actor, plays uh, Darcy, who's the head of the neo-Nazis. And they come up with a very, very clever scheme to mislead the police. The band was able to get one phone call off to 911 the neo-Nazis non-lethally stab one of their own to give up to the police. They allow one of their team members to get uh, arrested and the other to be taken to the hospital. And then nobody knows that the, group, that the band is there or they're being held hostage. They manage to get the upper hand on the bouncer that is guarding them. 
They lock themselves in the room along with uh, a neo-Nazi girl who is friends with the stab victim. Patrick Stewart calls in what he calls the Red Laces, which are a bunch of neo-Nazis that you presume from the jargon that they're using uh, are ones that actually have uh, kills under their belts. In quick order, three of the four kids get killed. Two of them get killed by uh, dogs, attack dogs. Uh, One of them gets stabbed to death in the back. And we're left with just the frontman, who's played by Anton Yelchin, and the neo-Nazi girl, who becomes his ally, who have a long third act where they're playing a game of wits against the neo-Nazis that have them trapped in there. First question I always like to ask is, uh, did you like it? I, you know, this is a, a not my cup of tea, generally. Uh, I, I think there are some really good survival horror movies out there, but... I, I, you're I, next. You're next is you, one that I thought of. Oh, Your Next is a fantastic one. That's a great film about a wealthy family that's reuniting in a remote mansion. Their characters are painted in very, very brief strokes, but you can tell they're all fairly unlikable, and they start getting picked off one by one. There's not much of a story there, but you begin to really root for the one dinner guest who is not supposed to be there. She's an Australian woman from the outback who actually has survival skills, and she is able to surprise and turn the tables on their attackers. And it's a really adrenaline-fueled movie that by the end, you're just cheering for her to be successful. Right. Um, I didn't feel... <laughs> it, it's, it seems a little bit unfair to compare that film to this one. They're very different films, but the premise is the same. People are trapped, and they have to work their way out of a situation. It's a siege. I, I, I didn't care for it very much. I, I thought it was very well put together, and there's a lot that's really good in it, uh, a lot to recommend in it, but overall, I didn't care for it. What did you think, Bert? I agree with I thought it was fine. I was concerned it was going to be hard to stomach in terms of graphic violence, and I found that except for one kind of gross-out scene, it seemed fine. For people who like this sort of thing, I would say try it. Otherwise, I don't think I would recommend it. But my first thing I wanted to talk to you about is we're calling this a horror movie. And is that an accurate description? And what genre of horror movie would we consider this? You know, that's a really good question. I would definitely classify this as horror. The level of carnage and gore that's in the movie, uh, which is very, very brutal and very explicit. And some stuff, to be fair, that I'd never seen before. It is really stomach churning. That definitely pushes it into the the, horror. Horror genre, yeah, absolutely. How would you categorize this as a horror movie? What type of horror? Survivalist. Which overlaps with thriller, right? Absolutely it does. Back in the 70s, they used to always call them escape movies, like The Towering Inferno or The Poseidon Adventure. Well, those are disaster. I think that that fell within the disaster genre. Yeah, exactly. There's no real enemy. The enemy is nature. Before they coined the word disaster, they they called them escape because the idea was that it was like a puzzle. The characters are in this mousetrap, and they have to figure their way out. And to some degree, that's true here as well. I want to talk about some of the things that I I liked about the movie, but the only things that come to mind are the things that I didn't like. It piqued my curiosity with the one scene that really, in terms of being a gross-out scene, that really uh, caught your attention. What was that? That would be the scene where the neo-Nazis and the band are at an impasse. Patrick Stewart gives a great speech, muffled through the door, 
soft-talking and convincing Anton Yelchin to surrender the gun that they've absconded with from the bouncer that they've immobilized. They agree to give over the gun. Anton Yelchin reaches his arm out through the door, and with machetes, the red-laced neo-Nazis slice open his arm uh, until it's barely hanging off the sinews. And uh, it is... Uh, a really shocking horror scene. We don't actually see them cutting. We we see him with his arm outside the door and him screaming very genuinely. And we see what his arm looks like when he pulls it back in. We actually don't see the violence being done to the arm. We see the aftermath of the violence. We see his hand, his wrist, and his forearm sliced very, very deeply in many, many sections, just sort of splayed out and hanging limp. All right, that was the same scene that I found the most shocking in the movie as well. I was curious. Uh, I felt the same way. It was unexpected and, and disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really repulsive. Yeah. Uh, and it definitely puts you on pins and needles for the rest of the film. But I, it was I, so disgusting that I don't know if you felt the same way. Obviously, he has a lot of blood loss, mm-hmm. and you can see it in the way he talks and is trying to form sentences. But that same person who's lost all this blood and has a dangling hand becomes one of the two survivors. And in the last act, it seems to handle everything well and is uh, speaking coherently, even though he's lost gallons of blood. And that, for me, was one of the issues that I thought was a little uh, unconvincing. I, I think the director has a very clear set agenda, and that is to play with audience expectations. And in some ways that works, like the surprise of having his arm sliced that way. But I think he is constantly flipping the script and taking the route that the audience doesn't think it's going to go. And at some point, I don't know if that becomes tedious exactly, because I I felt tense throughout, but I didn't care so much about the outcome by the end of the film. Partially because I wasn't really crazy about the characters. They are 20-somethings. Uh, they're young people. I think part of your ability to buy into a film with uh, young people, especially very fashionably hip young people, it depends on sometimes on your age. Yeah. Also, I, I know that even when I was a kid and I, I would see uh, films with teenagers, I would alternately fall in love with them and say that, oh, that's exactly how I feel. or That, that character, though he's not me, is expressing uh, a sentiment that I can really relate to. Or I'd find them incredibly pandering or unrealistic or unrealistic or just uh, stereotypes of teenagers or young people absolutely in this case anton yelchin who's the lead frontman who makes it all the way through the film he is i actually saw him in fright in the remake of fright night which i thought was fine which was, I, I saw uh, incredible. too i thought that was sort of a trashy drive-in movie which i appreciated for that as that because it that has its own place too it's funny because I was watching Fright Night after watching Green Room because I was trying to put my finger on it, what it is that I don't like about his performances. <laughs> and I, I think that he's doing a lot of vocal fry. That is to say, he is uh, modulating the the sound of his voice to keep it relatively low. And uh, his voice is coming from the back of his throat. And, and it, it reminds me of uh, Christian Slater. When Christian Slater was a kid and he was in Heathers and a bunch of other movies, he had this very affected Jack Nicholson act. And it was really unfortunate because, like those Twilight Zone kids whose, uh, whose uh, backs get slapped, it seemed to like, like his, his voice just sort of froze there. I'm not sure it was ever his voice, yeah. but he 
sort of became a lifelong celebrity impersonator. And I feel like this Anton Yeltsin kid... Except he has a Russian accent in the Star Trek movies. So, yes. <laughs> uh, he's a good, which I think he does well. He's a comic relief sort of in those Star Trek movies. And, yeah. And I find him charming in that. Yeah, he's a, I, I agree. He's a good ensemble player. I don't, I don't know that I, I felt like he could really carry the movie. Of the kids that were there, he, he might have been the most compelling band member. There was the girl. There was the, <laughs> there was the guy. There was the kid with green hair. Yeah, a lot of these people were identifiable from their haircuts. The, the surviving girl is the one who had the the blunt bob type. Uh, sort of a uh, mullet. Or mullet bob, sort of yeah. It's a Nazi mullet. Yeah. You were talking about you know you, how you either identify with some of these teenagers or don't, especially if they're just stereotypes. When I was watching the movie, you know, I'm way past my teenage years, I was thinking this explains why as a teenager – I wasn't into punk rock or, you know, hardcore rock because I have nothing in common with these characters and this way of life. And so that's what I was thinking of. Not that uh, they didn't seem real or not. It's just that this is not my crowd. There's a lot of grandstanding. There's a lot of swagger. There's a lot of posturing. And none of that is appealing to me. I, I feel it's probably completely genuine to the scene. The director knows it well. He's like a skate punk kid grown up turned director himself. Uh, I actually watched a couple of interviews with him, and he seems like a, a sort of a, an amiable jock. Have you uh, seen his other movies? Actually, I did watch his two other movies. The first film was called uh, Murder Party, yeah. and it has a real student uh, film quality to it. In fact, I think it is a student film. It appears did to be shot en- on videotape. And, did you uh, enjoy it? Um, ooh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's making fun of kids in film school and their pretensions, but at the same time, it feels completely unaware of the fact that it is being equally pretentious. Got it. Yeah, it, it, it kind of bugged me. It, 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 it seemed to be a murder spree of everyone that this guy hated in film school and he seemed no better than any of them at the end of it. It was really gory. Near the end, uh, a character gets a chainsaw in the face. Uh, It's a really extended scene and it's a lot of it's played for laughs, but it is very, very gory. And the character is screaming and screaming. And Stephen happened to be walking through our living room while I was watching this, and he looked at me with complete disgust and said, why do you watch this kind of garbage? <laughs> You're doing research. Well, yes, exactly. And the second movie, which I know is Blue Ruin, but uh, I don't know anything really about it, what, uh, what did you think of that one? I thought that was really great. I thought that was a million times better than Green Room. It has a real neo-noir quality to it. There's a sense of, uh, of true crime. He may be a one-trick pony. Uh, a lot of that film is also defying your expectations. The film revolves around a very gentle but resourceful homeless man who learns that the man that killed his parents has been released from prison. And he doggedly and ineptly returns to his hometown and begins a vengeful killing spree. But you realize as the killing spree goes on, the people that he's killing are horrible. They are hillbilly garbage. And if he doesn't kill them all, they will kill his remaining sister and her children. 
So you end up rooting for him, and it's a, a very unexpected story, and it's very brutal, but there's something uh, heartfelt and, and thoughtful about it. It is very different from Green Room. Yeah. Um, Although here he's killing bad guys. They're killing bad guys, too. Uh, this obviously spoiler alert, which we have to figure out how to... <laughs> the whole thing should have a spoiler alert at the beginning, but how would you feel about the movie... If the good guys, the boy and the girl... The reformed neo-Nazi girl and the right. front men from the band. And, and the band's uh, lead singer. How would you feel if the movie didn't end with those two killing off all the bad guys? I was expecting that they wouldn't. The odds are so much against them. I was expecting a much bleaker ending. And I was expecting... I, was, I agree with you. I was expecting a much... Gorier, yes, there's definitely gore, and we talked about the goriest scene, but I was expecting a much gorier, darker movie. Yeah. And I think even though I would have enjoyed a, a gorier and darker movie less, I think it probably would have packed a bigger punch and had more of a, a staying power with me as yeah. opposed to this, which really has kind of a commercial ending where the good guys win. Uh, even though a lot of the good guys are killed off, but the remaining good guys win, and there is justice in terms of these really evil characters get killed. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the ending, because, and we can double back and talk about other elements about the film, but yeah. the, the final scene, the reformed neo-Nazi girl and Anton Yeltsin, the frontman from the band, confront Patrick Stewart and his remaining cronies who are setting up a crime scene. They're arranging the bodies of the three dead band members, so it looks as if they trespassed on private property, and they were all killed by the attack dogs. They had trespassed, and they were siphoning gas and stealing, so that is the story that they plan to present to the police. Anton Yelchin and the, the Nazi girl... Is it Imogene Potts, or Poots, or Potts? It's sure. Imogene Poots. Uh, <laughs> they get the drop on all of them, and they managed to shoot Patrick Stewart dead, along with his cronies. Then they're left just waiting by the road, waiting for the police to come, and there is a callback to a question that came up during the shitty podcast that the band was recording at the beginning of the movie, and in that podcast, the Mohawked uh, podcast host asks uh, the most uninspired question at the end of the podcast, which is, what is your Desert Island disc? At which each team member, each band member, gives the answer of a classic 80s punk band. Some of them not even that punk, kind of uh, a little bit new wave. Somebody says a clash. Anton Yelchin is the only one who sort of uh, refuses to answer. He seems to be lost in thought. And then at the very, very end, uh, when he's sitting by the side of the road with Imogene Poots, he turns to her and says, like, I know, I know now what the name of my Desert Island disc is. And she says... Who gives a fuck? And the film ends with that. And those are two characters that I actually felt had bonded a lot during the experience that they had together. And I I felt like that little last tongue-in-cheek thing was, I don't know, (laughs) it kind of really left me cold. Yeah, because you want some some more warmth between the two characters. It was there. I mean, I actually think that, I mean, they really come together and really turn the tables on those neo-Nazis, especially the ones back in the building. I thought that they had actually developed a genuine sort of camaraderie. 
But at the end, there is that spunky, subversive attitude that, again, I think it either really appeals to you or it completely turns you off. And for me, kind of completely turned me off. What did you think of Patrick Stewart? Again, I thought he was fine. He's ancient and his voice is ruined. I could barely understand what he was saying because... It was a combination of both the acoustics and the fact that he mumbles. And I don't even know that that's a choice that he's making as an actor. It's nice that they cast against type and that he gets to play a villain. But I don't think it was as incredible a performance as all the reviews gave it. I agree with you. But I think the whole movie, I don't think he was given that much to work with. Again, the movie was mediocre, I thought, including the performances. As I was watching it, I was thinking they had those three overhead shots. They had the overhead shot that introduces the movie of the van parked inside the cornfield. They have overhead shots uh, of the van traveling to the neo-Nazi compound. They have one really startling overhead shot of the woods around the compound that actually looks like a model. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, this really reminds me of The Shining a lot. Oh, wow. And I, I thought to myself, I bet you a lot of other film critics are, like, I'm a film critic, but I bet you a lot of legitimate film critics are going to be, like... You're a film <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> uh, are going to be focusing on this similarity, even though, really, those three shots are very, very brief, and they are a relief from how incredibly claustrophobic the movie is. The movie is really about being trapped and, and I think that segues into one of the things that I really liked about it. When they get to the neo-Nazi compound and they go into that bar, the, the director captures that real sense that you probably have felt at some point in your life that you are someplace that you do not belong. And the moment that they even begin approaching the building, and certainly once they're inside of it, I can think to myself of at least a couple of times that I've walked into a bar where I, I needed to get the hell out, that, that I, I was not the desired patron there, and I needed to leave. I thought they captured that really well. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm more intrigued in terms of the, the, uh, the Shining reference. Did you see anyone else, to, any other critics talk about that or reference that? Actually, surprisingly, no. I think film critics are often afraid to reference uh, movies that are older than, than five years uh, for fear of losing their audience. Yeah, no, I was, I was surprised that, that, that there weren't references to that. I, I do have a question. One of the main, there aren't that many women in the movie, and one of them, Alia Shawkat, is probably well known to audience from, from TV. She's from Arrested Development. Arrested Development, exactly. Okay, very good. And how did you feel about her death? And I'm not going to ask a leading question, but uh, in general, did you have any feelings about the way that is shown? Well, she's one of the last to die. In fact, I think she is the last band member to die. She is very plucky. I feel she makes it further into the film than most of the other ones that get killed. For one thing, I think it's because she's a name actress. At least people would recognize her from Arrested Development. You see her, a dog jump on top of her, and you hear her scream, but they don't actually show her getting mauled, but the, you, you learn that that is her fate. She gets her throat ripped out by one of the attack dogs. And so I thought it was surprisingly, um, where you develop, she's, she's definitely a plucky character, and uh, the audience likes her. I thought it was an opportunity that she missed to have it so off camera. Basically, her death is off camera. It surprised me. Yeah, it's... it's very muted. Yeah. Maybe it's simply to sustain tension. No one pauses in a battle to grieve. 
people die and they're off very quickly and the survivors just press on. But yeah, it, it, it is surprising how little attention is given to it. Especially because I have an emotional wallop. I mean, I still felt bad that she got killed, obviously, even without seeing it. But do you think the director thought it might be too much for an audience to see this character that's one of the more likable characters uh, killed in a gruesome way? Do you think he filmed it and then decided not to show it? It's interesting the violence that he chooses to show and the violence that he chooses not to show. It, it isn't consistent. And again, maybe that is playing with expectations. That, you, uh, that you falls think, into your theory, yeah. Yeah, you think that after seeing this hideous scene where Anton Yelchin's entire arm gets sliced up like deli meat, you think that every murder is going to be hideous. But perhaps by showing you this, I only need to be gruesome one or two more times in this movie, and your own fright at what may happen should be enough to sustain tension, and I don't need to get NC-17 rating on this. Right. I thought that was a relief for me when that happened. That actress, Aaliyah Shawkat, was also in a really good recent spoof. Well, it's a satire of horror movies called The Final Girls. Have you I've seen it? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, it's, I, I thought it was really charming. Honestly, I should have recommended it to you for Friday the 13th, because it, it is a spoof of camp horror movies. Okay. Uh, to say, horror movies that take place at summer camp. Right. Um, but it is uh, funny and heartfelt. She's one of the main characters in that. Okay. So totally recommend. Very charming horror spoof. Sounds good. One of the things that I was going to mention, I remember about the film, is the use of jargon. It's one of those things that makes you believe that the characters are authentically punk. When the mohawked kid who recommends the Nazi gig to the band tells him about them, they ask him some pointed questions, and he's trying to explain how non-dangerous he believes that they are and they're throwing a lot of jargon back and forth which i could barely catch but it's all all sort of insider vernacular on the scene on the punk scene and skinhead scene and then when patrick stewart takes over the confinement and then the execution of the band he uses a lot of terminology with the neo-Nazis that sound very businesslike, and you don't entirely understand what his strategy is because he seems to be referencing crimes they committed earlier. He's using, uh, I I, I can't even remember the language that he used, but it has that effect of getting you excited for something that's happening, but not entirely understanding and, and then gathering most of it from context. But in terms of the jargon, I did. Uh, you're bringing up something that I, I had read, which was that the director had the band members watch. I don't know if you know the Penelope Spheres mo- uh, documentary about punk rock called "The Decline of Western Civilization." So, in I... terms of the the jargon and authenticity of it, it seems to have been based on reality. Scene. Yeah, on on the real yeah. scene. Yeah. Uh, I, I've always wanted to Although see that movie. Those movies are 20 years old now, so the original punk rock scene, but I'm, I'm sure there's it extends to today's punk rock scene. Very good. I will have to catch that eventually. I've always wanted to see it. I know you're a fan of the Mark Maron interviews. I haven't listened to a ton of them, but the Penelope Spheres one is a fascinating interview. And because I found her so fascinating, I tried to watch The Decline of Western Civilization. There's, it's a, there's three of them. The most famous one is the first one. And I, I couldn't get through it. Again, <laughs> uh, it's not my scene. And even though it's interesting from a sociological point of view to observe these people and to see what makes them tick, it's not people I'm 
I guess deep down that interested him. Yeah, this movie was not for us. What yeah. other movies did she direct, though? Uh, Wayne's World. Of course. She made a lot of movie. And then another punk, uh, not, so non-documentary punk movie called Suburbia. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, but she talks in the interview about being a film student at UCLA, and not that she comes from an elite background at all, or educated background, uh, and but hanging out as a student with Lorne Michaels, and him asking her, this is just one of many interesting stories, he asked her to be part of SNL when it first started, and she declined, but she ended up teaching Albert Brooks how to direct the short films that were a big hit when the, in the first few seasons of SNL, and she's just fascinating. Cool, very good. Maybe one or two more thoughts. There were lots of shots of one of the attack dogs that gets away. And I kept on thinking that it was going to culminate in some very, very brutal, unexpected way towards the end of the film. There are no less than two or three attack dogs that are used. And one of them gets off leash and runs into the woods. And there are shots of it interspersed throughout the final act where it is just padding along a highway. Yep. And at some point towards the very end of the movie, Anton Yelchin and Imogene Poots, when they get the upper hand on one of the bar's managers, this is a, a very weak-willed guy, very weak-chinned guy, and you can tell from the beginning of the movie that he's a coward. They actually let him go in, in a weird act of mercy. They let him go, and as the final shots of this guy, this coward, picking his way through the forest and the dog padding in a very determined way forward, I kept on thinking that they were going to cross paths and this guy was going to get his comeuppance at the end. But again, the movie defies expectations and that doesn't happen. And how did you feel about that character being let go? I remember personally feeling relief. I thought, oh, I'm kind of glad. Even though he was a coward and not a hero in any way, I was happy they didn't kill him. How did you feel about it? I was glad as well. He seemed harmless enough, even though he is instrumental in setting a lot of the deaths in motion at the beginning through the actions that he takes. I didn't really relish anyone getting killed, except for maybe Patrick Stewart. I did have a thought. That obviously, one of the key scenes in the first part of the movie is when the band members give up the gun. That scene where Anton Yelchin's uh, uh, hand gets almost chopped off. I didn't buy it in terms of how they could uh, come to that decision how yeah how how anyone could be, make it an argument so convincing that you would give up your firearm when you're trapped in a room i i think this is meant to convince you that patrick stewart is the soft-spoken devil on the other end of that uh, of that conversation there are uh, some posters online some really beautiful mondo posters that feature that entire speech. It was probably the longest bit of dialogue that Patrick Stewart has when he is trying to sound utterly reasonable and present both sides of the situation to the band on the other side of the door. We don't even see him delivering that speech. We, we hear the most muffled version of it through the door as the band would. <laughs> I think that they're so desperate for a positive outcome, and this is the only option that they've been given that they very foolishly take it. And did it bother you, or did you, you know, obviously, we knew this is, hey, this is a movie, and there's an hour left, something yeah. bad's going to happen, but... Uh, I, I kind of already anticipated it. Yeah, that that was going to happen. Yeah, okay. I mean, like, I, I didn't put a lot of stock in the logic of their decision, it just felt like the scene that needed to precede the carnage, so yeah, I, I... We had to get there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, and that scene with the dog ends with the dog patting past Imogene Poots and Anton Yelchin after they're victorious at the end and they're waiting for the police. Anton Yelchin points his gun at it and dry clicks the revolver because he's completely out of ammunition, having unloaded all of it into Patrick Stewart. It walks past them, ignoring them, over to their dead master and lays next to him. Yeah. And it's a very sweet scene. And I'm glad another dog didn't have to die. In this movie. <laughs> another murderous dog didn't have to die. <laughs> yeah, well, I, actually, it's funny that I, I can't abide violence against dogs. Uh, well, you're a dog owner, so that makes sense. Yeah, animals in general. I, 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 I feel much more offended and angry by dog death in movies, especially if it's cruel. I, I, yeah, I, I think of that Alejandro Inarritu movie that gained him so much fame, his first movie, uh, Amores Perros. And that has a lot of dogs getting killed in dog fights. There's a rabid dog that kills a, another pack of dogs. There's so much dog murder in that movie, it, it just repulsed me. Much more so than Green Room, with all of its human death. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it might mean that I, I'm not a very empathetic person. Or my empathy uh, is directed towards a wrong, <laughs> the wrong species. <laughs> <laughs> it's more complicated than that, I think. Oh, well. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that credit. What else? Is there is there anything else to say about this movie? I wish it was better. <laughs> yeah. We pick movies and they always remind me of others. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, uh, it reminded me of the hostile movies, which I didn't really like. In terms of the gore, the torture porn type stuff, at the end of those movies, you end up uh, rooting for the, the people who are suffering end up killing the, the, um, the sadists or the, you know, the people, the bad guys. It's a formula that there's some satisfaction in the person that's being abused, gaining power, and killing the abuser. Even though you pointed out rightfully that this guy seems to be changing the expectations a lot, it did feel a little bit like that formula. All right, you have some bad guys. They're going to abuse the good guys. And at the end, the good guys are going to kill off the bad guys and you'll feel some satisfaction about it. That is a tried and true formula. Yeah. And instead of it being the girl band member, it's the weenie, very wayfish, very skinny, certainly mortally wounded band member that actually makes it to the end. Yeah. I was recently watching a horror movie that was really similar to that called Hush. It's on Netflix right now. I watched it because uh, a coworker recommended it to me and also because the young director who made it, I think it might be his first film, and he's been tapped to direct the next Halloween, I, I, I don't know if it's reboot? a re reboot, it has to be a reboot after those Rob Zombie movies. Yeah. But this was a very simple story about a deaf woman in a cabin who is terrorized by a masked killer. And the entire film is him uh, at windows, trying to get into the house, making her aware that he can get in at any time, deliberately torturing her and extending her murder, and her slowly getting the upper hand on him, figuring out how to best him at his game. It's extremely simple. It's fairly short, but by the end of the movie, I began to feel a little bit annoyed. <laughs> Just because. Uh, at the director or at the characters? At the director. It's a final girl sequence again. There's a woman at the end of the movie who has to become the killer of the killer. And in some ways, that can be very powerful and very empowering. 
And then there are some times where it just feels like there wasn't enough of a story to begin with. And really, I'm just watching a woman twist and turn sadistically on a hook for an hour and a half. And then it's like, well, you you created this hideous situation uh, where you think I'm going to enjoy watching her suffer. And I don't feel that much relief at the end when she wins. In my youth, I remember a movie called See No Evil. Did you ever see this with Mia Farrow? Uh, she's a blind woman and there's a, uh, a psychopath out who's killed her family members. Does that ring a bell for you? It doesn't. The film that I was thinking of as I was watching this was uh, Wait Until After Dark, which is a different disability. It's a woman who is blind, who is living by herself. Is that uh, the Audrey Hepburn? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. But tell me more about the Mia Farrow film. Well, I remember it terrified me as a kid, especially there's an extended scene or where Mia Farrow has woken up and she's walking around this mansion and because she's blind, she doesn't see the gruesome bodies of her family around her. Oh my God. Um, so in the, she, she's, uh, I think there's a twin bed. There's two twin beds in the room and her cousin is uh, dead on one of them. There's someone in the living room who's dead. There's someone in the bathroom. And it's just that idea of her. And it's very quiet. It's this big mansion in the, in the, in the countryside in England. And that concept terrified me. And it's so, and it still does. It was, uh, it's giving me chills just thinking about it. Yeah, it is. It's worth watching just those 15 minutes or so. It's terrifying. Like the best, uh, scenes from when a stranger calls, which is not a very good movie. Which I don't remember. I know Carol Kane, Carol Kane's in it, right? Yep. The babysitter, the babysitter. And again, that story is frightening. And that was one of the ghost stories we would tell in summer camp where the calls coming from inside the house. But I don't remember the movie very well. Are there there's parts of it that are very effective? That first half hour where it's just her at home and she's getting the phone calls, the tension is unbearable. Oh, wow. Unbearable. And, and when the police come and rescue her, the revelation that the kids have been dead upstairs for hours is horrifying, even if they don't even show their bodies or any of yeah. the... It, it, I remember that being really ruinous, yeah. that that was already a, a fait complete. The movie hasn't even begun. The kids are already dead. They've been torn apart. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes is right, but scary. Yes, yes. Um, and then the second half of the film follows her like years and years later. She's an adult, she's married, and the killer of those kids escapes and begins terrorizing her again. And it ends on a really good scene, but there's a lot of setup to get to that moment. So now I can't entirely recommend it. How did we get on this topic? Uh <laughs> Movies where women are uh, tortured for extended periods of time, and sometimes exactly. it's empowering, and sometimes it's just sadistic. <laughs> I but think, I'm trying to think why I didn't see When a Stranger Calls, because literally that was one of my two or three favorite type of scary stories to tell that I learned, I think, in summer camp. And I think I must have thought that the story that was you know, being retold by my friends was scarier than the movie. Excellent. I always get it confused with He Knows You're Alone. That was a different movie. And what happens in that one? Is there it, a phone call suit? It's uh, a psychopathic killer. It opens in a movie theater where some girls are watching horror movie, and one of them is really scared, and a killer stabs the audience member in the back through her chair and kills her. I remember that really scared me, and then it moves on to a completely different group of young people that he's terrorizing, including a young Tom Hanks who has a big afro. Yeah, I don't think it's very good. I don't think there's a lot of 
there might be some phone calls in it, but it, it's it, it's it's a very different film. It's just their titles are always really. I'm similar. looking at the poster. It's a scary poster. It's a good... <laughs> Remind me what's on it. It's a girl just in fright with her hands up to her, covering her mouth and her <laughs> eyes bugging out. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Hanks is in it. You're correct. Yeah, yeah. I have ridiculous recall for these movies. <laughs> crazy, crazy recall. And I can't remember anybody's birthdays. I remember everything that was in a movie that I saw years <laughs> and years ago, but I can't. When, when is your birthday? It was a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I even, suspe- I even suspected the photo that you sent me uh, uh, of you and your boyfriend. It looked like, oh, it that was, was a birthday. Piece, that was a birthday cake. Yes, you're oh, right. oh, I feel so terrible. No, I didn't I feel, feel so bad. Don't, bad. No, Earth. don't feel bad at all. What's the, actual, what's the actual date? May 14th. May 14th. Sorry. Your is September 2nd. Yeah, it's easier because it's my birthday and I'm so <laughs> selfish and narcissistic and I have such a bratty little brother. Of course, I could only think of myself. So. Uh, so bad. There's one last thought that I had that was, yeah. did you see a terrible movie called Sucker Punch? No. It's, it's by the guy who directed the recent Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice movie. His name is Zack Snyder. And it is ostensibly a movie about female empowerment. It is a film about a whorehouse where a young woman flies into a fantasy world. Every time she's forced to perform, she goes into this sort of video game landscape that's very anachronistic. It's like samurai warriors, and she's a badass, and she's kicking ass. And, or a World War I battlefield where there's blimps. It's very steampunk. has ridiculously great special effects, but it's not remotely feminist at all. It's really torturing the characters the entire movie. And while we're talking about movies where women get beat up and ultimately are supposed to persevere and we're supposed to cheer for them, I'm reminded of that because there are just as many times I, I get annoyed and I think that the, the director is a mean-spirited jerk for having done this to his characters and ultimately yeah. no victory at the end is worth forgiving what I've had to suffer through or what the characters have had to suffer through. I felt that's all been done for the audience's delight yep. on some level, that they're acceptable victims in that regard. Yeah, that's a fine line where directors are, for example, depicting rape, and then it becomes, instead of something violent and horrible, it becomes something erotic. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, sometimes they mean it to be, but sometimes they don't, and it just comes across that way. So it's, you know, that's difficult. If you're showing abuse, how you portray, how it ends up, coming across to the audience. Right. How, how do you not make it exploitive? Exactly. Uh, right. Well, cool. So if you had to give this movie a letter grade, hey, you never told me where did you see this? I saw this in Manhattan at a multiplex. Okay. Yeah. And did you see it and by you? yourself? I saw it by myself. Uh, by Union Square. Now I'm remembering Union Square. In my, <laughs> the one thing I do remember from the experience is that Union Square has 4D movies where the seats move and shake. I don't quite understand if movies are made for 4D or somehow they. It's uh, it's. Uh, I haven't seen any move of these 4D movies yet, but uh, it's it's puzzling. You're in sort of a roller coaster seat that shakes and turns and sprays you with water and exactly. Then... It's like Captain EO, or, which is dating myself, or Honey, I. You know, do you remember in uh, Epcot? Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah, I, it, the kids, or, yeah. Those those were a lot more passive. This is violent, and and you need like a chiropractor after. <laughs>
I saw this movie by myself at the Music Box Movie Theater again, which is a, a very seedy, rundown theater that's not far away from me, but always uh, shows interesting movies. Great. And I'm glad that I didn't see it with Stephen because this is exactly the kind of horror movie that he despises. I'm glad I didn't see it with anyone. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't torture anybody. We didn't torture anyone, which is the the good thing about seeing movies by yourself. Absolutely. But then, of course, the bad thing about doing that is that you don't have anyone to talk to about it and complain about it. Now now we have this. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually one of the, since I didn't love the movie, I was curious to see how our conversation would go, but there's so much to talk about even when you don't, when you don't like the movies that, it, uh, that I'm happy we we're, having, we're doing this. Possibly even more to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Excellent. So um, maybe the next movie we should do The Conjuring sequel, though I do recommend that you watch the first film. I just recently rewatched it because uh, Stephen's sister was visiting us, and we got on a kick of watching It Follows, and then The Witch, and then we we watched The Conjuring, and then American Psycho. Uh, So we watched watched, uh, one horror movie after another. Interesting, and she's related to Stephen. Yes, 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 indeed. <laughs> she also has not the highest threshold for them, but she got intrigued because she thought that every horror movie that we watched was quality. So, and they are. Uh, yeah. So she was she was engaged, and then when we finished late at night, she was regretful because then she was really creeped out for the rest Scared. of her. Scared. <laughs> so let's uh, let's plan on. Um, I'm going to plan on watching the first Conjuring, and since it's getting a lot of buzz, um, try to see the second part in the theater. That sounds fantastic. Good. Excellent. All right. Love you. Talk to you later. Love you later. Bye.